Good morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is found in Mark 4, 13 through 19, on page 839, and Luke 10, 38 through 42, on page 869 of the Bibles under the chair in front of you. Uh, in Mark. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while, then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In Luke. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Um, this might be one of the most relevant sermons I preach all year. If not for you, then certainly for me, uh, because I have yet to meet anyone who answers the question, how are you, with something like, well, for starters, I'm not very busy. Uh, I've got all kinds of times. I feel like my, my life is one long Sabbath, and I've just, you know, uh, that, that just doesn't happen, right? I don't hear anybody talk like that. I suppose somewhere in Kansas, there's a six-year-old boy who is not part of a soccer league, and maybe he can say, I'm not very busy, but the rest of us are very, very busy. In fact, when you ask the question, how are you, most often following that is something like good busy, real busy. In fact, there's a story told of a, of a woman who came to the United States from another country and started calling herself busy because she thought that's what she was supposed to do because every time she inter introduced herself to an American, she basically heard, hello, I'm busy. So she thought, okay, I guess that's the American greeting, hello, I'm busy. Because if we're American, we are busy, or at least we think we are. The fact is that we lead the industrialized world in hours worked per year. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that futurists were predicting that coming generations, meaning ours, one of their main problems would be having too much spare time. Like in 1967, that's the year I was born, I'm 46, I know some of you are doing the math. Uh, in 1967, there was, a, there was a hearing before a Senate subcommittee talking about the impact that technology was going to have, and it was going to free up so much time that the prediction back in 1967 was that, <clears throat> was that the average work week by 1985 would be only 22 hours. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? 
In fact, it's not 22 hours. I think we all know that. Uh, back in 1967, the average work week was, we, we, well, we worked an average of 1,716 uh, hours per, per year, which is about 33 hours uh, per week. And in, 19, in, in the year 2000, that number had jumped. So this doesn't even include the last 14 years. That number had jumped to 1,878 36 hours a week. We work one hour more than our British counterparts. We work two hours more than our German and Italian counterparts. If you want a really great life, move to Norway. Uh, They work 14 weeks less than we do per year. Some of you are like, passport. Uh, Okay, so the question is why? Why Why are we so busy? This is a really important Sermon, and I, I want you. I picked these these passages because I, I want to show you scripturally why this is so massive for you and I in 2014 and beyond. But why are we so busy? W- what's driving this? Well, the the punchline really is it's your heart, right? We are busy. I am busy. You are busy because something in my heart says I'm. I need to be busy. It's always a heart issue. And I'm going to get to that later, but we, we are people who live from the inside out, not the outside in. It is always, always, always a heart issue. Okay, before we get there, let me just give you some practical considerations. Kevin DeYoung, he's a young preacher in, in um, Michigan, and he's written this great book called Crazy Busy, and, and he says that one of the reasons we're busy is the sheer amount of opportunity that's been afforded to us in the 21st century. So let me, let me quote from him. Listen to this. He says, quote, we have more opportunity than ever before. The ability to cheaply go anywhere is a recent development. The ability to get information from anywhere is too. Even the ability to easily stay up past sundown is relatively new. The result then is simple but true. Because we can do so much, we do do so much. Our lives have no limits We eat most of what we want, we buy most of what we want, and say yes to too much of what we want. In all our lifetimes, we've seen an exponential expansion in the number of opportunities for children, opportunities for seniors, opportunities for leisure, opportunities for travel, opportunities for education, opportunities at church, opportunities in our local communities, and opportunities to make a difference around the world. No wonder we are so busy. See, now think about yourself right now. How many of you tomorrow will be the first day you sort of get back to normal after the holidays? A lot of us, right? What's normal? (laughs) I bet it goes something like this. The buzzer, you know, your your alarm's going to go off at some ungodly hour, at least in your mind. You're going to press snooze a few times, whatever. You're going to finally drag yourself out of bed. You're going to get in the shower. You're going to eat a really quick meal because let's face it, I mean, We don't eat slow meals in America for breakfast. So we eat this very quick meal. We get in our car. We commute an hour or so to work. Uh, We get to work. We work till around noon. We have our lunch. We we do our break there. We come back. We get tired around 2 o'clock. We feel like we're going to fall asleep, right? We get done about 5. We check out. We commute back home. We're exhausted. We drag ourselves across the threshold. We say hi to the kids, kiss the wife, kiss the husband, whatever. We, we try to spend a couple of hours, if possible, we, we, with family. We watch the TV. We get back in bed. We rest for the night. And we start it all over in the morning. It, it, and, and this cycle continues over and over. And maybe, maybe tomorrow, like a lot of us, you'll think one of these days during this week, you'll think maybe today, 
Maybe today I can keep the house in only a mild state of disaster. Maybe I can get a few things checked off of my to-do list or at least only add as many to my to-do list as I've taken off of my to-do list so I break even. Maybe I won't feel like falling asleep after lunch today. Maybe if I just work really hard for 18 hours and get a bunch of stuff done, maybe then maybe I can actually feel that I'm ahead for a few hours tomorrow. Tim Chester is a pastor in uh, England, and um, he has written a, a little book called The Christian's Guide to Busyness, where he gives 12, he suggests that you ask yourself 12 diagnostic questions, okay, to see if you're sick, if you're ill with what he calls hurry sickness. Okay, you ready for this? Ask yourself these questions. You're not going to have time to write them down because we're in a hurry. So, Ready? Number one, do you regularly work 30 minutes a day longer than your contracted hours? Number two, do you check work emails and phone messages at home, I should add, and at the dinner table? Number three, has anyone ever said to you, I don't want to trouble you because I know how busy you are? Number four, do your family or friends complain about not getting time with you? Number five, if tomorrow evening were unexpectedly freed up, would you use it to do work or do a household chore? Number six, do you often feel tired during the day or do your neck and shoulders start aching? Number seven, do you often exceed the speed limit while driving? Number eight, do you make use of any flexible work arrangements offered by your employers? Number nine, do you pray with your children regularly? Number 10, do you have enough time to pray? Number 11, do you have a hobby in which you are actively involved? And Pinterest and Instagram don't count, okay? So, and number 12, do you eat together as a family or household at least once a day? How'd you do? Because I've read that now to three different services and every time I'm reminded I am a miserable failure. See, see, we are crazy busy. This is a busy church. This is a, a busy culture. And we are filled with people that suffer from, Tim Chester's words, hurry sickness. See, and the problem with hurry sickness, one of the problems, is that it's contagious. So contagious, in fact, that our kids get it. Our loved ones get it. Our employees get it. Our co-workers get it. It passes on. And in fact, it's become so pandemic that, that we now believe that hurry sickness, that busyness is not only normal, it's desirable. Like, like right? We don't, we don't necessarily relate to people who are not busy. We have axioms in the English language to deal with non-busy people. If you want something done, give it to who? A busy person. Idle hands are what? The devil's workshop. Right? So, so we, don't, we don't like a lack of busyness. So what's wrong with it? You're like, Chris, so we're busy. So is that, is that a bad thing, right? 
One of the reasons we ask questions like that, what's wrong with it, is because we don't like laziness. I mean, I don't know anybody that's like, I really love lazy people. I love hanging around lazy people. I've got a buddy who's lazy. I just love that guy, right? We don't like laziness, and in fact, that's good. We shouldn't like laziness. The Bible has a lot to say about lazy people, and it's never a good thing. We're studying Proverbs as guys on Wednesday night, and there's a lot of discussion about there and about the slugger, the slothful person, the one who is lazy, and it's never a good thing. The guy can't even grab his fork and put it to his mouth. It's like, I can't even get up and make a meal for myself. Somebody else has to do it. I got to order, you know, I got to go to the store and get a, a, a TV dinner. I, 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 I just can't get up off the couch. So what we do is that because we don't want to be labeled as lazy, we opt for busy. We tend to think of these as opposites. One is good, one is bad. But here's the deal. Busyness is not the biblical corrective for laziness. Diligence is the biblical corrective for laziness. And some of you are busy because you're not diligent. And the Bible says, man, go for diligence, right? There's all kinds of things, right? Diligence is filled with blessing. Let me show you this. Okay, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. I mean, diligence results in finding God. That's pretty amazing. Proverbs 10, verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly surprised. See, see, see that, that's, that's the corrective to laziness. It's not busyness. Diligence is filled with blessing. Busyness is fraught with danger. Now, this is really what, where I want you to see, and this is why I picked the, the passages that I picked for us to look at, Okay. The problem with busyness, okay, some of you think if I could be less busy, I'd have more time for family. I could actually take a nap. I could do my hobby. Well, that's great. If you could do those things, wonderful. That isn't the problem with busyness, that you don't get to do those things. The the, the biggest danger of busyness is not physical. Some of us should actually be more physical. It's not, it's not relational. That is, yeah, relationship can suffer, and it will suffer if you are overly busy. The biggest danger is spiritual. Busyness puts your soul at risk. And that's why I want to start in 2014. Some of you look at the list of things we're going to be talking about, human sexuality and, and abortion and I mean, I mean, sanctity of life and family. I mean, these are big, big issues in our culture right now that we're going to talk about in, in, in January. And you're like, busyness. That, it's like one of these things, not like the other. But this is huge for you. This will rob you in 2014 and beyond, if you don't decide that this is something I've got to get under control, right? I'm not here trying to free up more time for you. I could care less. I, I, I'm not trying to make your life better than somebody else in this room, but I am desperately pleading for your soul and mine in 2014. The challenge of busyness is not, oh, I've got these bad habits that I'm into, and if I could get rid of these bad habits, I'd have more time. No, that's not the challenge. The challenge is, is not that we gotta, we gotta let a, make a few bad habits go away. The challenge is that we will let our spiritual lives slip away through busyness. And most of us don't realize that we're putting our souls at risk. Most of us think we can manage 
And I want you to see there's very real dangers. Okay, so let's, let me just run through three of them uh, pretty quickly, okay? So, so first of all, busyness can ruin your joy. Now, I've said this I don't know how many times in the last seven plus years that joy is one of the things that should characterize a Christian. It's not a suggestion in Scripture, in fact. It's a command. We are commanded. You realize that rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say it, rejoice. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. Jesus said, I came so your joy would be full. That should mark us as Christians. And God says that because he knows he wired us. He knows how we're wired. We chase our joy every day. And he wants us to be finding our joy in him. And if we find it in something less than him, then our joy is ultimately robbed, right? So busyness will come in and will attack your joy, and now you'll go trying to seek joy in whatever you can find it in. This is, this is amazing, by the way. Let me just sort of step aside for a second. Did you, did, there was a study done that I think was probably meant for this crowd right here, Southern California, that found that commuters... Okay, you're with me so far? People that get in their cars and drive back and forth to work? Um, commuters in traffic face greater levels of stress than fighter pilots and riot police. That's an actual study. I'm serious now. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Like some of you are like, no, I know. That's why I have a shotgun in my seat. Right? You're... You, you like suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder every weekend. It's just, it's this, this, you know, and here's what happens. When your life is frantic and busy and frenzied and hurried and all these things, guess what happens? You're more, more prone to anxiety. You're more prone to resentment. You're more prone to impatience, to irritability, to depression. See, because here's what happens. Most of us live our lives with zero margin. Right, we fill up every single gap in our schedule with something. Like, you answered that question. What would you do if tomorrow night was freed up? Oh, I got chores, baby. I got something I can do. I'd stay at work, whatever. I, 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 something would fill that up. We never stop. We never rest. We never let the air get quiet, do we? John Ortberg is a, is a pastor <clears throat> up in Northern California, and he, in one of his books, he talked about a time when he was really busy and he was trying to get stuff done and so he needed to sort of try to figure out how to manage his time, right? So for a lot of you, this is all about time management. If I could just manage my time better, right? I got my to-do list and there's all these programs, these apps that I download to get whatever. So you got all this time management. So he's trying to figure this out and he's, he's, he's trying to go, how do I get all this done and how do I become a better leader and all this and I want to do this. And so he calls his friend who's kind of a spiritual mentor for him and has discipled him through the years and he calls his friend and he gets him on the phone. He goes, look, here's what's going on in my life. Here's what I'm trying to do. I've got all these things I'm trying to get done. I'm trying to put the big rocks in first. I'm trying to do all the things I'm supposed to do. Now what, what should I do, friend? Tell me. And he takes out his pen and his paper and he's like, ready, go. And he says on the other end of the line, the guy got really quiet and he just said, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And John Ortberg was like, okay, got it. What's next? It's like, no, John, there is no next. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's some of you, right? See, see, when you're hurried and you're overwhelmed and you're busy, it impacts your whole life. 
You feel overwhelmed. When you start feeling overwhelmed, guess what happens? You start feeling kind of a despair. When you feel despair, it starts to leak out of you. You become irritable. You lose your joy. And Kevin DeYoung again says, when busyness goes after joy, it goes after everyone's joy. Right? Mom and dad? I mean, tell me this isn't true. When I, when, when Pastor Chris, when the father of four children loses his joy in my home, joy is sucked out of my home. It impacts everyone in the Lewis household. And it does that for you. We don't want to have our joy robbed. Okay, second of all, busyness can rob your heart. And this is why I wanted you to be in Mark 4. Okay, so go to Mark 4, page, uh, <clears throat> page 839. And what's going on? Jesus tells a story. Jesus tells parables. He tells stories. They have meaning. He wants to kind of help you understand the meaning. He says, here's what happens. He uses this metaphor of a farmer going out. He's a sower, and he goes out with seed in a bag, and he's just, he's throwing seeds. Just imagine throwing seed, and it's scattering. And as it scatters, some of it lands on the path, and some of it in rocky soil, and some of it in thorny soil, and some lands over in good soil. And then he says, here's what happens in each of those places. His disciples go, okay, so now what did all that mean? And he goes, okay, well, the seed is the word of God. The soil is the heart of man. And what I want you to see, disciples, I want you to see how the word of God interacts with a lot of people. So he says what happens in some hearts, it's like landing on the path, and it goes nowhere. The word of God absolutely is like, it's like, you know, bouncing off a steel wall. It does nothing. I mean, I've seen people like this. I know people like this. I've watched them sometimes in services. I've got friends who, you know, oh, he's a pastor. I'll go and see what he does. And they sit there and I watch them and they fall asleep and the word of God just ping right off their soul, does nothing to them. Jesus says that's what happens with some people. Satan snatches it away as soon as it hits the ground. Then, then Jesus says, but there's others that it sort of, it grows at first really fast and it fades just as fast. Like they get all excited and then they're just done, right? I, I got all excited about this faith in Jesus and then I punted. Why? Because things got hard. The sun came out. It's a scorching sun. Persecution, Jesus says. Things went bad. I thought that when I said yes to Jesus, and I loved that, and that was great. I thought everything was supposed to grow great. There wasn't supposed to be any problems or pain, and I'm experiencing problems and pain. Jesus didn't take that away, so I'm done with my faith. Jesus says that happens to some people, and some of that has happened to some of you. And then he says, but there's this other group, and look down at verse 18. Others are the ones among, sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things enter in, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. See what's happening? I mean, up in the parable, what he's telling you, he says, man, the word sunk down. It got a little deeper. Looks very promising. Plant begins, to, plant begins to sprout. Things are looking better. It's about to bud. It's about to produce fruit. Oh, this is going well. I'm so excited to see what God is doing in this person's life. And then, boom, the thorns come. Choke it out. The work of the word of God is over because of thorns. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that the human heart is a thick forest of thorns. That is, it's producing thorns all the time that are trying to choke out the word of God. And all Jesus does is uh, goes, I want to show you a few of those thorns. 
Now, I'm just going to tell you two of them. But he shows you, here, here's, here's a couple of thorns that grow out of your heart that will absolutely choke out the word of God. That's why I say, this is about soul survival in 2014. This isn't about time management. And so look what he says. The first thorn that will choke out the word is what? Verse 19, the cares of the world. That's amazing. I mean, at the top of his list is the cares of the world. What ruins so many people spiritually is not bad doctrine or gross immorality or whatever you want to say. What ruins more people spiritually, what is at the top of Jesus' list is the cares of the world. It's simply life. It's everything that I've got to get done. Because guess what? Only one thing can occupy the center of your life and my life, right? If you will, there is this central part of us, if I can describe it this way, there is this throne in my heart that I am constantly putting things on. And guess what I mostly put there? Whatever I sense at the moment is most urgent. That's what goes on the throne of my life, and I guarantee you that's what goes on the throne of your life. And it chokes out the work of the word. Right? So what's most urgent? I mean, what is it? Is it car repairs? Is it water heaters? Is it termite damage? Is it doctor's appointments? Is it laundry? Is it taxes, birthdays, checkbook balancing, thank you notes, dusting, car washes, college applications, repairs, reading, phone calls, mowing, window washing, redecorating, meal planning, grocery shopping, lesson planning? Do you want to add to this? A million things that we say, these are the cares. These are, these are right in front of my face. I've, I've got to get this done. These are the cares of the world, and Jesus says they choke out. Now listen, this, by the way, this, as an aside, this is one reason I love Scripture. <laughs> scripture is just so incredibly real. Jesus doesn't go up in the pie in the sky and say, well, it'll choke out your spiritual life as some esoteric theological principle that barely anybody can handle. No, he says, you know what will choke it out? Is your life tomorrow. Your life next weekend. Something will come along, and if you're not careful, we'll choke it out. But he says there's another thing, too, and he calls it the desires for other things. You see this in verse 19? Another thorn, the desires for other things. <laughs> Again, just so real. Because this is us. Right? The tender shoots, God's word. You hear the word of God. You come to church or whatever, and the word of God is preaching. You say, yes, that's, that's good. And, it, and, it, and it, it's doing something inside of you, and then something begins to choke it out. And one of those things, he says, the desires for other things. What is that? The tender shoots begin to grow. We look and we go, I got this desire for something else. And that desire is, is an overtaking desire. That, that is, we want that so bad, I'll do whatever it takes to get that. That thing. I'll do whatever it takes to get that person. We see something and go, what's it going to take to get that? And then you know what? Oh, I guess it's just going to take a few more hours. I guess I just have to sacrifice my weekends, whatever, and then I can have that thing. Now, let me, let me make sure you understand what's actually happening here. That word desire in your Bible, this is one of the problems with English is it's a very limited language. In the Greek, yes, it's the word desire, but it's the, it's the combination of two words. And the front of that word is the word epi. We get our, we actually use this word in English, epicenter, epilogue. 
It's our way, it's, a, it's an intensifying word. If we talk about the epicenter of an earthquake, we're not just talking about where an earthquake hit, we're saying, boom, here's where it started. Here's where the intensity came from. And he says, this is an epi-desire. This is an over-desire. This is where I take a good thing, desire's fine. You want money? That's fine that you want money. You want some possession? That's okay. It's not, that isn't the problem. It's when you take that and it becomes an over-desire. It takes a good thing and turns it into an ultimate thing. And you and I do this all the time. See, see we're supposed to th- take the things that God gives to us and receive them with a thankful heart, to see them as a gift from his hand. I hope that one of the things you did over Christmas is not just thank mom and dad or, or thank your, 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 your girlfriend or boyfriend, your husband or wife or your kids or whatever. You thanked Jesus for the good things that he gave you. Because I guarantee you this room is filled with the goodness of God. We're supposed to do that. But here's what we do. We end up, taking good things and we make them ultimate things when you make them ultimate things you worship them you, you put them on that throne of your heart and and you, you you end up putting them at the center and they when you do that it chokes out the word of god in your life see see what is the greatest threat to the gospel like if you were like you know what i desperately want to see the gospel go forward in 2014 i want to see us impact our community for christ and I do too, right? If, if that was our hearts, our burning desire, that the gospel would permeate this culture. You know what the greatest threat to that is? Is it poverty? So do we need to go out and solve poverty? That's fine. That's good. Is it malaria? Is it, is it mosquito nets? Is it, is it the persecuted church? Is it the devil? You know the greatest threat to the gospel, Jesus says, is sheer exhaustion in trying to get other things, right? The desire for the busyness, Kevin DeYoung again says, busyness kills more Christians than bullets. Busyness prevents more people from seeing Jesus than anything. I can't tell you how often I've seen this happen as a pastor. Where I, I look around, I'm, like, I'm so excited to see God doing something in someone's life and then it seems like something in their life takes hold, the cares of this world, the, the persecution, the desire for something comes in there that says this is better and they go after it. And it's the siren song that leads them to their doom. See, think about this. How much progress in your faith and my faith has been stamped, just absolutely stamped out or stunted by busyness? I don't have time to go to church. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time for family worship. Why? Because I'm too busy with soccer practices and homework and meal preparation and football games and school projects and ESPN and everything else. I don't have time. Listen, this is why the Bible says, Proverbs chapter 4, above everything, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Is that your priority? 
that ought to be that ought to be at the top of your list. I'm going to guard my heart ferociously. Blaise Pascal, mathematician, brilliant philosopher, theologian, and he he had has this famous line that you and I would do well to remember. He says this, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. Can any, like, is that you? I don't know how to stay quiet in my room. My life is noisy. Listen, you will rob your life of spiritual growth and spiritual fruit if you don't prune the tree through rest, quiet, and calm. We could talk about this for weeks, by the way. Like just a Sabbath. Some of you are like, ah, it's Old Testament. How many of you actually take a Sabbath? And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm preaching to myself here. (laughs) So I tell you, this, this is a message as I was going through, like, this, this is for me. I should just turn around and let somebody tell this to me. Third, busyness can hide the emptiness in your soul. Some of you are empty. And, and frankly, sitting right here is really hard for you because this is the most quiet you've had in a long time. And what, what happens when you're quiet is that you're confronted with your own emptiness. You're, you're left with just your own thoughts. You begin to hear and see things. God begins to reveal things about your heart that, frankly, you'd rather not have revealed. Tim, Tim Kreider, he's a writer for the New York Times as far as I know, I, I, I don't know that he's a Christian, but he, he wrote an article that kind of went viral back in June of 2012 called The Busy Trap. And let me just quote to you a couple things he said because he's dead on. He said, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Now, what does he mean? He says, obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, and in demand every hour of the day. Isn't that true? Isn't that how we look at people? We, we put people like that up on a pedestal and say, man, that guy, that gal, so busy, their life must have tons of meaning. We've got to stop worshiping busyness. The danger of busyness is that what it may do is it may hide a greater danger that you never slow down long enough to consider. So, okay, so what do we do? What are we supposed to do about busyness? Get your pen and paper. I'm going to give you 12 things. Totally kidding. That would be awful. I'm not going to give you a bunch of stuff to do. I'm going to let Jesus finish this sermon for me, okay? And I want you to hear from him. So, so we, Aaron read Mark chapter 10. So, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 10. So go over there to Luke chapter 10, verse 38. This is the story where Jesus is at probably Lazarus and Mary and Martha's home, and 
Mary is ser- Martha is serving and Mary's sitting down and she's just kind of enjoying Jesus and, and this is bugging Martha and she finally comes and says, Jesus, tell Mary to get up and help me. And this is probably the closest thing to a sermon on busyness that Jesus ever preached and it's only, what, two verses? But I want you to watch what he does here. He goes, Martha, Martha. Now just stop right there. There's a lot of scholars that believe that that sort of double greeting like that is a sign of intimacy, love. Like Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under your wings and you weren't willing. Martha, Martha, I love you, Martha. I love busy people. Martha, you're so worried. You're so anxious. You're so troubled about many things, he says. Isn't this true? So troubled about many things. There's all these things, all this noise in my life. I'm troubled about so many things. You're tied in knots. You're upset, Martha. You want to be a servant. I love you for that, but you're getting yourself worked up. There's these many things. And he says, listen, Martha, I got to correct this. See, Martha is busy. She's like a lot of people in this room. But she's busy with not with what matters most. That's the point of Jesus' little sermonette to Martha. There is one thing. He says, there's one thing, Martha, that's necessary. One thing. I'm not going to give you a list of 12. One thing. Mary's chosen it and you haven't. And I'm not going to take that away from Mary. See, Martha, it's not, your busyness isn't wrong. It's just not best. One thing is that you're with me. Now, some of you are like, oh, awesome. I love this sermon because that means I'm going to let the dishes pile up and let the kids pack their own lunch because I'm going to go spend time with Jesus. I'm not doing anything, right? And I don't think Jesus means this as a prescription for every moment of every day. I think here's what he means. He, he didn't teach all the time. He didn't say, hey, if you're my disciple, sit at my feet, you know, cross leg 24-7. Rather, what he's saying is you you, Mary, Martha, all of us, must keep first things first. That you must have the proper priorities. Stephen talked about distractions last week. And that's exactly what's happening to Martha. It's not that she's doing anything terrible. She's serving. But she's letting a good thing squeeze out the best thing. It's that she's allowing other things to pull her away from the one thing. She's so busy serving dinner, she doesn't have time to be with Jesus. She's saying, you know what, Jesus, okay, if I can just get all my stuff done first, then I'll spend time with you, and Jesus, you can get my leftovers. And let me tell you something. When Jesus gets your leftovers, it doesn't send him crying into the garden like, oh, Chris just hurt my feelings. He looks back at you and goes, what are you doing? The only one you're hurting is you. Don't you see what you're doing to your soul? Don't you see what you're doing to your heart, Chris? See so you know what this means? It means you put God first, right? See, I, I got tile in my home. A lot of us have tile in our home. I, I, I don't know how to tile. I, I don't know how to do anything, actually. I have a hammer. 
I'm not even sure how to use that, but it, uh, I've watched these guys, right? What do they do? And they take the tile and they first put down stuff and then they put the tile down first. Then they go in and they fill in the cracks around the tile with the grout, right? I hope I've got this right. Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. See, so, so here's what we do. We, we go, here's my life. I want my life. I'm sort of the decor of my life. I'm everything. I'm the tile. And what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to let God's stuff fill in like grout around my life. You just have it all backwards. You don't, you don't let God's stuff fill in the cracks of your life. It means you let God be the tile and you fill in around him. It means you let God be the hub and you're the spoke that comes out from him, right? You give God. He says, look, he says, there's one thing necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. I'm not gonna take that from her. What's the good portion? When is the good portion for you? You have to answer that, by the way. Are you a morning person? Like, you just, bing, you know, it's six o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, I just kind of come out of bed. Then that's the good portion. Are you a night owl? Like, I don't even go to bed until two in the morning, and I have my most productive times from ten. That's the good portion. Who, what gets your good portion? That's really the question, right? So, I mean, if, if, is it, is it, your social life? Is it TV, honestly? Is it social media? Is it sports center? Is it chores? Is it investments? Like if some, some outer space person came and looked at you and said, man, I'm trying to observe their life, and, and I was able to ask them, What's the, what, 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 are they, what gets the good portion of their life? What, what would they say? I can't explain it, but it's this little screen they can't seem to take their eyes off of. They love it. Are you kidding me? We will squander the glory and the greatness of God for some stupid posts on social media. What gets the good portion? How do you do that? How do you give Jesus the good portion? Here's what you do. You spend time with him every single day in the word and in prayer. How much time, Chris? I'm not going to tell you that. Like, I quote to you Martin Luther, and Martin Luther was like, you know, I, I can't hardly function during my day unless I spend three hours in prayer first thing in the morning. Well, good for you, Martin. But, but you know, you're living in a day when there were no light bulbs, and you went to bed at five, and there was no daylight savings time. I'm not telling you to spend five minutes or 50 minutes. I'm saying you spend time every single day before God in prayer. That's the one necessary thing. And by the way, this isn't Jesus goes at the top of my list. This is Jesus is the hub out of which everything comes. I mean, honestly, go home and throw away your New Year's resolutions. And I mean this seriously. Burn them, shred them, and write one thing. I will spend time every single day 
in the word and in prayer before Jesus. I want you to imagine if you did this. If we could fast forward one year and be sitting here together one year from now. Where would you be spiritually? I'm telling you, not just you would change. This church would change. Our culture would change. Because we would have Jesus-saturated people. But if we do like most years, we'll have sports-saturated, media-saturated, social media-saturated people this time next year. And listen, I'm trying to help you jump. This is what we're doing. We want to help you jumpstart this process. This is why we're doing the Wednesday night prayer meetings. Give us time to sit at the feet of Jesus. It's like we're giving you this, this prayer guide. Give you some, these are, these are not like, like, you know, for spiritual giants. This is, it's not that at all. It's like just giving you something accessible to put in your hands to keep your, your, your mind going and racing toward Jesus. So that we can start our year. I mean, there's this principle I wrote to you about this week of you put Jesus first and everything else takes care of itself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. So are you busy? The answer probably for everyone in this room is yes. I'm not saying don't do anything else. And I don't think Jesus is saying that. I'm saying one thing is necessary. You spend time with Jesus every day. And like I said, I don't know if you needed this sermon, but I know I did. So let's pray.